let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this evening. We thank you for these first two books of Mere Christianity that we have finished and for this third one that we are embarking upon tonight. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray that you would help us to learn uh, from this book uh, the truth about what it means to follow you, what it means to have a Christian worldview, what it means to be ambassadors of reconciliation, holding out the gospel to this world that is so very broken. Lord, we pray for your blessing on our time together tonight and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, going to start, as we do every week, with this wonderful verse from Second Peter. Uh, it's a great verse for the season of Lent uh, for us to be thinking about a renewed focus in our spiritual life. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And we're going to talk a little bit about that corruption as we move on into the lesson tonight. So I just want to welcome uh, anybody that's new. We continue to have new folks each week, uh, and I appreciate the patience of uh, the folks who have been with us for a while that have heard me talk about on the beach uh, more times than you care to imagine. Uh, but basically, if you're new, there are three ways you can approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just sort of tune in when you feel like it. Uh, you might go make some popcorn in the middle of class. You might be reading a book. Uh, but you're sort of along for the ride, and we are delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel. You can go deep on those things that you find interesting, uh, but stay up on the surface for the rest. Or uh, if you are wired like I am, you can scuba dive and go, go for the gusto on every topic that we go in and listen to all the music and read the articles and read the books and all those things. But whatever level you want to join us, we are delighted that you're here. I do want to encourage you that if you're not on the email list to Google St. Philip's Charleston uh, and send me an email so I can add you. Uh, the summary and the resources that are in the emails are uh, a great help uh, to reinforce what we've talked about in class. And also for those of you who are new, uh, just a little hint about how to read this book. Please do not sit down and try to read this book in one day or over a weekend. Read it a little bit at a time. Read it out loud to slow yourself down. Because these were originally broadcast talks, each one of them is really loaded with material. So we want to make sure uh, that we take our time uh, to really be able to chew on the material and get the most out of it. And also, I just want to recommend the C.S. Lewis Doodle on YouTube, uh, which is a great resource that will help you on some of these chapters um, to be able to understand what's going on. So for tonight, as usual, we have some music. Um, it's a little bit obscure, 
but maybe someone might get it. Y'all frequently surprise me when I think I've got something that will stump you. Uh, so let me crank that up and see what you think. If you think you know what it is, you can send a chat or you can just listen. So that may have been a little bit hard to hear, but it is uh, something that is part of our Anglican heritage. And some of you might have been able to pick that up, even if you were not aware of what exactly it was. So that was actually the choir of Exeter Cathedral, and they were chanting Psalm 19. And we're going to talk about Psalm 19 later tonight because it relates really beautifully to this particular chapter. And in the Anglican tradition, uh, in Evensong, the psalm is chanted. And uh, one of the glories of Anglican music is this chant uh, that's a beautiful way to worship through the psalms. And I'll be sending you a link in the email, not only to that, but to a... Uh, playlist that has all of the psalms in the Bible uh, being chanted by choirs in the UK. And it is uh, quite lovely and a wonderful worship resource. So uh, to the context, just a reminder, it's England in wartime. The BBC is a target uh, for the Luftwaffe doing the bombings. Lewis is coming into London uh, in the midst of the flames, climbing over the sandbags. 1942, where we are for this chapter tonight, is when the Baedeker bombings were going on. And again, Baedeker was the great travel guide of the 1940s. And the Germans were trying to break the will of the British people by attacking the most beautiful and beloved sites in England, whether it be uh, cathedrals or public buildings or gardens or stately homes, those kinds of things to try to break the will of the British people. So uh, we're going to really quickly run through this book uh, what, that we've covered so far, uh, because as Lewis builds this book, it is an argument. It's kind of like if you're playing Django and you're building these stacks of sticks on top of each other, um, you need all of them there. Uh, if you skip over some of the foundation, it's very easy for it to crash uh, like it does in that book. So the first book, Lewis starts with looking at right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe, not talking about the gospel, but talking about what just any ordinary person could observe. 
And of course, people were thinking about the meaning of life because so many people were dying in World War II and people thought it was the end of the world. So this question, who are we and how did the cosmos come to be, was on people's minds. So Lewis talks about uh, this idea of the law of human nature, that humans know what they ought to do, but they don't do it. They break this law. And that that is something that is really important in terms of observable facts. And then he talked about, uh, in his conversations with the BBC, how important it was for the church, particularly in times of uncertainty and questioning, to expound, to explain the Christian faith so it can be understood by ordinary men and women, and to figure out ways that the faith can be applied. And that idea means that Christians need to lose their pride. We talked about Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. We've also talked about how in this age where people are so entrenched in echo chambers and there's not a lot of dialogue, that the power of story and of beauty and transcendence can enable us to become translators of the truth of the gospel. So book two, Uh, The second series of talks is about what Christians believe. And Lewis talked about one of the things that really got him in the midst of his very strong atheism that was a result of a long intellectual journey in his 20s. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But then he realized, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So Lewis then uses the idea of the invasion, that we are in enemy-occupied territory, that the rightful king is landed in disguise and has called all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, and that one of the major aspects of that is going to church, listening to the scriptures being taught, worshiping with others, because that is like getting the instructions from the high command about how to overturn this enemy. So Lewis also in that book talks about God and free will, the whole idea that if a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And that is what has made evil possible. He talks about how we are made in God's image and that there is no way that we can find happiness outside of God. He said, God made us, invented us as a man, invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel. Our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And then Lewis talks about the fact that Jesus said the most astounding thing ever uttered by human lips, that he was the being from outside the world who had made the world, that he came to this earth, that he had the power to forgive sins. And then he came up with the liar, lunatic, Lord trilemma. 
and said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And then in the next chapter, Lewis talked about how Jesus was the perfect penitent. That although Jesus says that his most important mission uh, is to teach, to teach about the kingdom of God, most of the gospels are taken up with the story of Jesus's suffering and death. And the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. And then Lewis talks about the wonder of the incarnation, the fact that because we're sinners, we can't repent perfectly. And because God is perfect and knows no sin, he can't repent because he doesn't need to. It is a road he's never walked. But by God's becoming a man, joining his nature with our frail humanity, he could do it because he was a man, and he could do it perfectly because he was God. So he then goes on to talk about Christ's perfect work and how he accomplished what was absolutely impossible, absent the incarnation, through his death on the cross for us. And that through that, a new kind of life appeared, what Lewis calls the Christ life. And this is not just following Jesus' teaching. This is being transformed, actually having Christ in some mystical way dwelling within us. And he talks about how Jesus teaches in the Gospels three things that all Christians are to be characterized by. One is baptism. One is belief in the sense of deep trust and commitment. And the third is that gatherings of believers are characterized by the breaking of bread and Holy Communion. And he makes a very strong case about this is not about just trying to be good. And he says the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life within him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. And I want to just pause for a second to say that is so important to understand in this moment of our culture where there is a lot of virtue signaling that goes on from both sides of the political aisle and how in the midst of all of that, people are claiming that they are good and virtuous. But the Christian belief is that we are all sinners, beggars at the foot of the cross, and that we don't bring any merit of our own, that we cling to the cross of Christ. And any goodness that we have is goodness that God imputes to us. So it's an important concept to hold on to. He then talks about this Christ life being something that is real and that we are literally the body of Christ, as Paul explains in Corinthians uh, 12, 
uh, this whole idea that we're all different from each other, but we all need each other in the body of Christ, that we are literally the physical organism through which Christ acts. And he also talks about how the material world is something that's God's creation, and that it's no accident that these material things like bread and wine that we believe have the real presence of Christ in some mystical way, that those things are matter that God invented, and that he uses those things as touch points for our spiritual life. So Lewis then talks about how uh, the fact that we are uh, in enemy-occupied territory means that sometimes we want to tell God how he should manage things. We want to tell him that his strategy is not very good. Coming as a little baby born in Bethlehem, why didn't he come um, you know, with tanks and armaments falling out of the sky to force people to join him? But he says that is not God's way and that we need to understand that we have to choose sides, that today is the day of salvation, and that God has opened the door and invited us to follow him in. So we talked about how one of the great paradoxes of that chapter is exactly what Paul expresses in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is just a beautiful summation of everything that Lewis is trying to say, because it's the whole idea that God is at work in us. He is at work in us, but we're not just passive. We are seeking to follow him at the same time. So that brings us to book three, uh, which is the next section of the book, and it's based on the third series of broadcast talks. And we kind of take for granted that we have this whole book, but at the end of each series, Lewis thought he was done. He thought he was done. After book two, he'd explained what Christians believe, and he could go back to Oxford and do the 400 million things he had put on hold uh, to help do these broadcast talks. But as you will see, it didn't quite work out that way. So one the, the week after Lewis finished the last talk, in fact, three days after the last talk, he gets a letter in the mail from the religious broadcasting section at the BBC on February 18th, 1942. And Eric Fenn, uh, who was Jimmy Welch's assistant, wrote Lewis and said, My dear Lewis, I won't attempt to gild the lily by trying to thank you for these last five broadcast talks of yours. You know what we all feel about them, and I don't think they could have been improved. However, we do owe you an immense debt for them and should like you to know that we are grateful. To show this gratitude, may I ask whether you would consider doing a longish series of talks in the Armed Forces program, say sometime in the autumn. Yours ever, Eric Fenn. Well, I will tell you, that is not my idea of how you express gratitude. Oh, we thank you so much. Let's give a whole bunch more work for you to do. 
But in fact, that is exactly what the BBC did. And Lewis took a little bit of time trying to figure it out, but then he agreed that he would do this. Um, one thing I also wanted to just point out is that Lewis took no money for any of this. Um, he, throughout his life, did not uh, keep the money that came from his books or anything else, uh, and he set up eventually a blind trust that all the proceeds went into. But at this point in his life, early on, um, he sent, when the BBC said, well, your fees are ready, he wrote them uh, with a list of places that he wanted the money sent. And so it was to several individuals that he had heard about who were needy and had been praying for God's intervention in their lives. A Miss Webb of Gloucester, uh, the Clergy Widows Fund, a Miss Buren of Twyford, and the Society of St. John the Evangelist, which was an Anglican monastic order where Lewis's spiritual director uh, was a brother. And this is one of the beautiful things about Lewis is that uh, none of these people knew where the money was coming from. It just appeared as a check in the mail. And think about, uh, it's in some ways, a little bit like a stimulus check during the pandemic. A lot of people were really hurting during World War II. Uh, they had lost their livelihoods, and for Lewis to send this money was an unbelievable blessing to them. So on June the 29th, 1942, in the midst of the Baedeker bombing going around all of England, Lewis sent the BBC a provisional set of topics for this next series that he proposed calling Christian Behavior. And the topics that he outlined were ordinary ethics or fair play, how Christianity makes a difference, Christianity and pleasure, chastity, humility, charity, hope and faith as virtues, and the problem of faith and works. And one of the things you'll see as we go through this book is that Lewis's initial idea is pretty close to what ended up being the final form for the book. So by August 15th, uh, Lewis was discussing the overall title for the series with the BBC. He had already finished uh, the talk starting uh, at the end of June. So he spent about a month putting these together. Uh, the first talk was scheduled for Sunday afternoon, September 20th, 1942 at 2.50 p.m. And this is one of the ones, some of y'all will remember my having talked about this, uh, that my mentor's mother-in-law, uh, Lady Elizabeth Catherwood in the UK, uh, was in her 20s during this time period, and she remembers rushing home after church uh, and a hurried lunch to be able to sit down in front of the wireless and listen to Lewis give these talks. And she said it was like that all over the UK, that people were running to get to listen to these talks. If you were in a pub, very often the publican would say, hush now, Mr. Lewis is speaking. And the entire pub would fall silent while Lewis gave his talk. That's a remarkable thing to think about. So launching into this first chapter, which is called The Three Parts of Morality. And I wanna just say before we get into this, this is an incredibly important chapter 
because those of you who are my age or, or older have seen over the past couple of decades a profound change in the discourse about morality and what morality is. And this is a change that, at least in my mind, has not been a change for the better. Uh, back in the 60s, there started being a movement to not talk about things in terms of right and wrong, to not talk about things in terms of commandments or should or ought or those kinds of things. That somehow became bad. And the important thing was to understand that everything is a choice. And there are different choices that are arrayed before you. And the important thing is to pick the choices that are authentic for you. Well, let me just say that flies in the face of 2,000 years of uh, Christian history. And then before that, uh, flies in the face of everything that the Greek philosophers discerned about the nature of morality and right and wrong that accorded very much with the Jewish view as well. So we're going to unpack this a little bit tonight, and I'm going to encourage you to go back and review this because this is going to be a very important building block. It's also a really important thing to be able to get your head around, to be able to articulate because our culture has gone so far off the beam from this and people don't understand what we're talking about anymore because they don't have this vocabulary. So Lewis starts off talking about the nature of morality. And I love this part. He says, there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. The schoolboy replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping round to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Well, I will tell you, that's what the view is that a lot of people have of Christianity. That Christianities are sad, sour people that don't ever have any fun and they're bitter and mean and nasty. Well, if you look at Jesus and the disciples, that's not the way they were. And you, when you look at the saints, you see the saints' lives overflowing with joy. And so uh, we have uh, got to get our heads around a correct understanding of this sort of thing. So Lewis goes on, I'm afraid this is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds, something that interferes, something that stops you having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why the rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you're being taught to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that because there are all sorts of things that look right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work at all. And this is worth thinking about. Um, think about some machine that you didn't know how to use, especially if you're a guy and you decided you wanted to just figure it out without looking at the instruction manual. Um, very frequently, that doesn't end well. Uh, you end up with things that don't work. Um, you end up breaking the machine um, and having to buy another one. 
I still remember one time when I bought a cheap lawnmower and I thought that I had done everything right to get it going and I started mowing the lawn and it did crank up for me, but I had failed to realize because I didn't read the instructions that the engine oil that I thought was loaded in the lawnmower wasn't in there yet. And by the time I got halfway through the yard, the engine burned out because I'd been running it without any oil. Well, that is very much the way that we behave with our moral lives. We don't get it right because we don't bother sometimes to find out what's right and wrong. This next section is particularly important. Lewis contrasts the ideal, the idea of ideals or obedience. Some people prefer to talk about moral ideals rather than moral rules and absolutes, moral idealism rather than moral obedience. Now, it is, of course, quite true that moral perfection is an ideal in the sense that we cannot achieve it. In that sense, every kind of perfection is, for us humans, and an ideal. We cannot succeed in being perfect car drivers or perfect tennis players or in drawing perfectly straight lines. But there is another sense in which it is very misleading to call moral perfection an ideal. When a man says a certain woman or house or ship or garden is his ideal, he does not mean, unless he is rather a fool, that everyone else ought to have the same ideal. In such matters, we are entitled to have different ideas and therefore different ideals. And part of what Lewis is saying here is that when there's a law, when there's a rule, it's not an ideal in the sense of something that's sort of imaginary. It's something that we're supposed to obey. Imagine if you were playing a game of tennis and you didn't have uh, players that thought that the lines painted on the court meant anything. It was just kind of wherever the ball happened to go, you could decide whether you felt like that was a legal shot or not. That wouldn't work out very well. It would lead to chaos. So Lewis says that there's a big danger with this moral ideal idea. He says to describe a man who tries very hard to keep the moral law as a man of high ideals is dangerous because this might lead you to think that moral perfection was a private taste of his own and that the rest of us were not called on to share it. This would be a disastrous mistake. Perfect behavior may be as unattainable as perfect gear changing when we drive. Sorry for those of you that don't know there's such a thing as a manual transmission. Uh, but gear changing is uh, something that there's an art to. You have to push the clutch at just the right time, move the gear shift at just the right time. And if you do that, it's beautiful and smooth. If you miss it, it makes horrible noises and the car may actually shake violently and perhaps grind to a halt. So he says perfect behavior is a necessary ideal prescribed for all men because the very nature of the human machine is just like the perfect gear changing that's an ideal prescribed for all drivers by the very nature of cars. 
And it would be even more dangerous to think of oneself as a person of high ideals because one is trying to tell no lies at all instead of only a few lies or never to commit adultery instead of committing it only seldom or not to be a bully instead of being only a moderate bully. It might lead you to become a prig and to think you were a special person who deserved to be congratulated on his idealism. So Lewis uses a great analogy here about arithmetic. And I know some of y'all have math anxiety, and when you hear the word arithmetic, you break out in hives, but just stay with me because it's a great analogy. He says, in reality, you might just as well expect to be congratulated because whenever you do a sum, you try to get it quite right. To be sure, perfect arithmetic is an ideal. You will certainly make some mistakes in some calculations, but there's nothing very fine about trying to be quite accurate at each step in each sum. It would be idiotic not to try, for every mistake is going to cause you trouble later on. In the same way, every moral failure is going to cause trouble, probably to others, and certainly to yourself. By talking about rules and obedience instead of ideals and idealism, we help remind ourselves of the facts. Now let us go a step further. I'm going to just pause there for a minute to say rules and obedience are not really fashionable right now. But we need to recover a love for the law of God. And we're going to come back to that um, at the end, to come back to this idea that the law of God, the rules, if you will, the moral standards that we find in the scriptures are designed to express perfection. And even though we can't fully achieve them, We need to see them as things that we are under orders, if you will, to obey. If we want to be the resistance in that enemy-occupied territory, we need to follow the orders. Uh, It's just like in the military. You don't get an opinion when your commanding officer tells you to do something. The correct answer is to salute and say, yes, sir. Uh, It's not, "Uh, are you sure that's a good idea? Uh, You know, last time I tried that, that didn't really work out very well. If you do that, you'll end up in the brig. Uh, We we need to recover this idea of the beauty of obedience. So Lewis goes on to talk about two ways of going wrong. He says there are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is when human individuals drift apart from one another or else collide with one another and do one another damage by cheating or bullying or something else. The other is when things go wrong inside the individual, when the different parts of him, his different faculties and desires and so on, either drift apart or interfere with each other. And what Lewis is saying here is there's kind of a way that you can go wrong in your relations with other people by shouting, by being a jerk, by being mean, um, that damages your relations with others. The other way that can go wrong is um, what we think of as sins that are known to you alone. The things that are in the silence of your heart or your mind, the things that are disordered, uh, where you think thoughts that are evil about other people um, and that manner of things. So Lewis goes on to use this analogy about ships. 
He says you can get the idea plain if you think of us, that is humanity, as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in one another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy for very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. And when I read this, it reminds me of there's a wonderful series of books by an author called Patrick O'Brien um, that are sometimes called the Aubrey Maturin Chronicles. Uh, there's a movie of one of them called Master and Commander some years back. But in those uh, books uh, taking place in the Napoleonic Wars with the British Navy, there's a lot of talk about being in formation and how important it is for the ships to be in the right formation, exactly the right distance apart as they prepare for battle. Because when they do that and they're in exactly the right formation, the enemy cannot penetrate because there's no room. But the other thing that's dangerous is if they encounter really bad weather. If they encounter really bad weather in the midst of their ideal formation, bad things can happen and one ship can veer off and then smash into another one and then there's a whole pileup, sort of like that pileup that was on the interstate in Texas last week um, that just wrecks everything. And what Lewis is saying here is that a voyage of a fleet of ships is only a success when they all move together in formation and when each ship is doing its part because the individual ship, if it goes off course, will cause the whole fleet to go off course and possibly be damaged. He then uses a second analogy, that of a band. He says, or if you like, think of humanity as a band playing a tune. To get a good result, you need two things. Each player's individual instrument must be in tune, and also each must come in at the right moment so as to combine with all the others. One of the things I always think about when I read that, if you've seen the movie or the musical The Music Man, you'll remember what happens the first time the band tries to play when they've been using the imagination method about what it means to play an instrument. It sounds like a bunch of cows being tortured. It's horrible. And what Lewis is saying here is that each instrument has to be in tune and it has to come in at the right time because if it, either of those things is not true, there will be a disaster. He goes on to say, but there's one more thing we've not yet taken into account. We have not asked where the fleet is trying to get to or what piece of music the band is trying to play. The instruments might be all in tune and might all come in at the right moment, but even so, the performance would not be a success if they had been engaged to provide dance music and actually played nothing but dead marches. And however well the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York and actually arrived at Calcutta. So where you're going on the voyage or what tune, what type of music you're trying to play is really, really important. 
So Lewis then goes on to talk about the three parts of morality. He says, morality seems to be concerned with three things. First, fair play and harmony between and among individuals. Second, tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual. And then thirdly, the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for, what course the whole fleet ought to be on, what tune the conductor of the band wants it to play. You may have noticed that modern people are nearly always thinking about the first thing, that is fair play and harmony between and among individuals and forgetting the other two. When people say in the newspapers that we are striving for Christian moral standards, they usually mean that we are striving for kindness and fair play between nations and classes and individuals. That is, they are thinking only of the first thing. And the newspapers and the television stations have been full of lots of commentary about fair play and harmony among individuals and groups and races and oppressors and oppressed and all of that kind of stuff. So there's been a lot of what people think is moral discourse, but according to Lewis, it doesn't really get there. So he says that when people talk about moral standards, that first level is what they're thinking about. When a man says about something he wants to do, It can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else any harm. He is thinking only of the first thing. How often do we hear that? It's none of your business. It's my own life. I'm not hurting anyone else. It's my choice. It's my life. Lewis says that that is an error. This man, he is thinking that it does not matter what his life is like inside, provided that he does not run into the next ship. And it is quite natural when we start thinking about morality to begin with the first thing, with social relations. For one thing, the results of morality in that sphere are so obvious and press on us every day. War and poverty and graft and lies and shoddy work. And also, as long as you stick to the first thing, there's very little disagreement about morality. Most people think that being fair is a good thing. Most people think that equal opportunity uh, is a good thing. Most people think that people deserve to be treated with respect and kindness. So as long as you do this, um, you'll find most people at all times have agreed, at least in theory, that human beings ought to be honest and kind and helpful to one another. But though it is natural to begin with all that, if our thinking about morality stops there, we might just as well not have thought at all. Unless we go on to the second thing, tidying up inside each human being, we are only deceiving ourselves. What is the good of telling the ship how to steer so as, avo- so as to avoid collisions if, in fact, they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all? What's the good of drawing up on paper 
rules for social behavior if we know that in fact our greed, cowardice, ill temper, and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them. I do not mean for a moment that we ought not to think and think hard about improvements in our social and economic system. What I do mean is that all that thinking will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is going to make any system work properly. It is easy enough to remove the particular kinds of graft or bullying that go on under the present system. But as long as men are twisters or bullies, they will find some new way of carrying on the old game under the new system. You cannot make men good by law. And without good men, you cannot have a good society. And I want to just pause there for a minute, because this is one of the things where there's been a sea change uh, since the middle of the 20th century. Because up until that time, although not everyone would agree about this, the, the majority of people would say that it was important to cultivate virtue. Virtue was a word that was used, that was defined, that you knew what that looked like. That virtue, doing the right thing, being a virtuous person was good. And Lewis, in some of his other writing about education, talks about how important it is to start training children about what they are to love. Not to just let them love whatever comes their way, but to teach them to love what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And that by trying to help them understand this, and to understand that being an honest person, being a person of integrity, being a person of fairness, being a person who is kind, being a person who is respectful, being a person who um, respects other people's property, all of these kinds of things, the moral training that used to be part and parcel of growing up in a family and what you would learn at school, that is almost gone from our culture now. And Lewis, in his great uh, book, The Abolition of Man, talks about men without chests. Uh, and what he means is that we're forming and having people grow up that have no idea about right and wrong because they haven't been taught it. And that when you have that, you can't make them be good just by law because they don't have uh, the intestinal fortitude, if you will, to be able to do that. So I could go on and on, but we've got to move on here. So uh, the next part he talks about is individual morality and beliefs about the universe. He says, this is why we must go on to think of the second thing of morality inside the individual. But I don't think we can stop there either. We're now getting to the point at which different beliefs about the universe lead to different behavior, i.e. worldview. Worldview matters, and we're seeing that in spades around the world right now. It would seem at first sight very sensible to stop before we get there and just carry on with those parts of morality that sensible people agree about. But can we? Remember that religion involves a series of statements which must be either true or false. If they are true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. If they are false, quite a different set. 
For example, let us go back to the man who says that a thing cannot be wrong unless it hurts some other human being. He quite understands that he must not damage the other ships in the convoy, but he honestly thinks that what he does to his own ship is simply his own business. And if you've had a conversation with a millennial or somebody in Generation Z, um, that is the prevalent belief. But Lewis then says the most important thing, perhaps, in the chapter, the question, whose are you? But does it not make a great difference whether his ship is his own property or not? Does it not make a great difference whether I am, so to speak, the landlord of my own mind and body or a tenant responsible to the real landlord? If somebody else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties which I should not have if I simply belong to myself. Again, Christianity asserts that an individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are a great many things that would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it may, might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely cor the correct technical term for what it would be. And immortality makes this other difference, which, by the by, has a connection with the difference between totalitarianism and democracy. If individuals live only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization, which may last for a thousand years, is more important than an individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important, for he is everlasting. And the life of a state or of civilization compared with his is only a moment. So the conclusion, it seems then that if we are to think about morality, we must think of all three departments. One, relations between man and man. Two, things inside each man. And three, relations between man and the power that made him. We can all cooperate in the first one. Disagreements begin with the second and become serious with the third. It is in dealing with the third that the main differences between Christian and non-Christian morality come out. For the rest of this book, I'm going to assume the Christian point of view and look at the whole picture as it will be if Christianity is true. So obviously, what he's talking about in this chapter, we are seeing playing out all around the world in moral debates and ideas about the role of government and what individual freedom means, all of those kinds of things. And it's vitally important that we as Christians be grounded in the scriptures and in the truth as we begin to try to form opinions about these things. So there are two, well, probably there are lots more than this, but um, two implications that I wanted us to talk about tonight. So the first one is that we as Christians need to re-engage with the truth and beauty of God's law as expressed in Psalm 19. And one of the problems that we have in the world of evangelical Orthodox Christianity is that we are 
very obsessed with grace, and rightfully so, because absent grace, we are all hopeless. But the fact of the matter is that God's law is given to describe to us the rules of how the machine is designed to run. Uh, there's a great book out there that I know some people in this group are studying right now um, by Chuck Colson that's called Loving God. And part of his whole premise is the way that we love God is by doing what his word says. And so uh, I wanted us to just look at Psalm 19, and I really hope you'll spend some time with us during this week because it is a profound psalm um, about the truth that is being declared in the natural world and in the law of God. Now, I would encourage you to read this along with me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, I could really preach on that, but I have two minutes, so I'm not going to. But I will commend that to your study. If that doesn't make you get excited about the beauty of the obedience to God's law, the beauty of God's plan that's reflected in the beauty of his creation, um, we, we should be filled with joy at the prospect that we have been given this gift. So I also want to talk about the second implication about building bridges. We live in a culture where the bridge is out. A lot of folks are on opposite sides of the river and there's not much dialogue between the two. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And look at this line, not counting their trespasses against them. And this goes back to what we were talking about from Tim Keller's book. We are so ready to count the trespasses of others against them. Their crazy views, their outlandish thoughts about what's right and wrong. But where's our heart to be reconciled, to hold out the gospel because of Jesus dying on the cross, who became sin, though he knew no sin, said that we might become the righteousness of God and offer this gospel freedom to people. We live in a culture where there still can be some dialogue among those with differing viewpoints about the morality of how different behaviors affect others. However, the second level about morality of the self is increasingly viewed as off limits for the same reason as the third level about who made the self. The most strident voices in our culture today proclaim loudly that identity and personal morality are constructs. They are solely the purview of the individual. You are your own creator, and you are responsible to no one except yourself. Your highest good is to create and speak your truth. So the question for us who are Christians is, how do you get around that? How do you engage that? And the answer is right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And there's a powerful example of this. Um, there's a guy some of you may have heard of called Daryl Davis, um, who was an African-American musician from Mississippi who played with B.B. King and some other people. He happens to be a devout Christian. Uh, you can see some of his work on the Veritas Forum on YouTube. But he decided that he was going to make a profound effort to befriend and love people who were leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. Now that is a bold vision for a black man in America. And he found ways to befriend these people and to basically confront them with the fact of, you don't even know me, but you've choose, chosen to hate me. How can that be? And through dialogue, he has led literally hundreds of people to give up that position. Um, it's quite a remarkable thing, and it's informed by his taking seriously what Jesus said about being the light of the world, loving your neighbor, um, loving your enemy, and loving all of those that God puts in your path with gospel-centered love. So it's a lot for us to think about, uh, but this chapter is one that I commend to your reflection. So let's close. Uh, I invite you to say this with me. Uh, because it is so true and it's particularly resonant when you think about this topic of obedience. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body and the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. 
Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we confess to you the pride and hypocrisy and impatience of our lives. Lord, we confess to you how much we want to justify the status quo and our comfort. And we want to justify those own areas where we know we're disobedient. Lord, I pray for all of us, myself first of all, that you would awake and refresh our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that you would wash the eyes of our hearts to understand your love for us and the beauty of your plan for us. Lord, that perfect law that is revealed in your word. And Lord, even though we know that in this life we will never keep it perfectly, let us please strive to do what is pleasing in your eyes, asking for the help and equipping of your Holy Spirit, that in each of our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control might be manifest to this hurting world. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.